can just do it on the bike by riding at 50 RPM, you know, all winter long. And that really doesn't have a huge amount of strength training benefits on your body per se. It just gets you used to riding at 50 RPM. That Triathlon Show, episode 75. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, we have part two in our series on cycling science with Stephen Chung. If you haven't already, before you listen to this episode, go back to episode 74 and listen to that, because we talk about Topics like cycling body types and the science of that, of course, the science of bike fitting, aerodynamics, and rolling resistance. And in this episode, we'll continue with uh, discussing topics like pedaling technique, cadence, pacing, strength training for cycling performance, and uh, a bit more than that uh, as well, if I remember correctly. This episode is sponsored by Precision Hydration. They have sweat tested thousands of athletes and they have found that the average athlete loses about 950 milligrams of sodium per liter of sweat, which is about twice what most traditional electrolyte supplements contain. To find out your ballpark number quickly, easily, and for free, go to precisionhydration.com, which I linked to down below in the show notes, and you can take their free online sweat test to uh, learn where you roughly fall on that spectrum of uh, sodium sweat content. Sweat sodium content, I should say. If you want to buy their products, use the discount code DEATHTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, for 15% off. I introduced Stephen Chung officially on the last episode of the podcast, so just to quickly, quickly recap, he is the co-editor of the new book Cycling Science. He is a sports scientist and a Canada research chair, and he is a wealth of cycling knowledge. So let's just dive right into hearing part two of this interview. Let's move on to to pedaling technique. So. Uh, there are many things that people talk about here, like pedaling in circles and and pulling at the bottom at the six o'clock position and and pushing through at the twelve o'clock position and all those sorts of things. Uh, what do we know from science about how pedaling technique affects uh, efficiency and and performance in general? Well, for the large part, there hasn't been any really good scientific evidence that training yourself consciously training yourself to pedal differently whether that is at a different cadence or to specifically think about things like pulling back or throwing your foot forward at the top stroke that they really have a benefit and but i think it goes back to some of the challenges of doing a scientific study if i am used to riding at 90 90 uh, rpm and if i'm used to riding in a particular style and you you just ask me okay ride at 110 rpm and really concentrate on pulling back you know my neural patterns haven't really 
had time to adapt. So you're not going to be able to see the improvements if they do exist. So that's one of the challenges of doing a scientific study on it. But in some, the overall scientific studies have suggested that there's not necessarily a clear-cut benefit to focusing on a particular type of pedaling or even on a a particular cadence on the bike so you know, on the general aspect you want to be as fit as possible and you ultimately want to just generate as much power as possible but i do still believe that a in general a more efficient pedal stroke you know has to be a benefit but if you are suddenly coming up to that 8% grade where it's 500 meters then it's not really about having the most refined pedal stroke going up that up that obstacle it is just about getting up that obstacle as fast as you can so you you uh in a sense also have to know when to be efficient and when to you know not care about kind of the most beautiful pedal stroke and just get yourself up a hill or or to push hard to stay on a wheel or into a headwind yeah so when you say that there haven't been like studies or it's difficult to make studies with people altering their pedal strokes what about the other way around are there any studies that have measured pedaling efficiency and tried to cluster people or classify them in the most efficient people pedal in a certain way or like certain properties or attributes of their pedaling technique is there anything like like that at all that we can uh that we know or have uh, any sort of evidence from yeah um first off there isn't really there's only a very very few papers on uh, comparing the pedaling mechanics of fitter individuals than, than less fit individuals. And I know that because I was doing a review of the literature for, for a company specifically on this topic. And there's really only about three papers. They all came from the same lab. And what they did show was that, uh, they had relatively non-fit, non-trained cyclists and they had, um, fit not super elite but still a fit trained cyclists and they did find difference in their pedaling mechanics the on they measured uh, the emg the muscle activity across the legs and they found some systematic differences on on uh kind of when particular muscles started firing and when they stopped firing so that's about as far as it goes there's really a whole uh kind of black hole there and i think there's a real area of opportunity now that there's so many power meter companies out now especially ones that separately track um right and left pedals such as the garmin the power tap p1 the pioneer power meters the true independent uh, power meters not necessarily ones like uh, you know power to max where it's still based on the spider and they're trying to parse out the the two sides but with those independent ones you can really start doing some data mining on you know on the people and the riding and you can start going through and mining the data to look at okay the fit individuals 
does their biomechanics differ compared to a non-fit individual? So that would be a really interesting avenue that I think uh, can be explored. And that would be, in a way, a much better way to tackle the problem than try to just test a few individuals in the lab. So, um, yeah, I would be all for doing those kind of studies and seeing whether there is a real improvement in or change in biomechanics with with uh, kind of different categorizations or fitness levels. Yeah. So what about, uh, I guess that means that also for uh, bilateral symmetry that, for example, the Garmin vectors and uh, some others, uh, maybe the power tap uh, power meters have is that still something that we don't know about either does that fall under the same umbrella that we don't yet know anything really about how important that is um that i would say that's correct it's intuitively we would think that pedal asymmetry is not a good thing because anytime you're putting more force on one side of your body than another it's probably gonna come down to some long-term risk of of uh, injury you know if you are really stomping all the time with your right leg and and um, minimal with your left leg you know that's got to play out through not just your lower body but the entire way you sit on the bike so intuitively it makes a lot of sense but um again and I, I would love to see the data on using some of these independent power meters and looking at in real life situations, are there differences in the in bilateral kind of asymmetry or not? And I think that's the first way to get get a, a grip on that question before you really do targeted kind of lab based interventions. But in terms of the value of the reader for your listeners, in terms of, you know, do I really want to get a, you know, a dual sided power meter like a Garmin uh, vector as opposed to, you know, I can get, get a, you know, power tap hub, for example. Um, I would say, you know, you really have to weigh the cost benefit of it. I think it's not as if your day to day um, kind of symmetry is going to change. So it's not necessarily something to track on a day to day basis, but I think it would be really valuable if you think you have kind of an imbalance in your body or in a way for bike fitters to use it to really optimize kind of the bike fit and see how people pedal. I would say those are the two biggest uses for these kind of truly independent power meters where they really come into their own yeah yeah and thanks for that for the the value for the listeners and uh, that's uh, another tip that we can add to uh, several other ones very specific and actionable things like maybe consider lowering your tire pressure if you've been running really really high and also uh, that that the priority of the aerodynamic investments should be your your own body your bike fits mm-hmm. your setup and so on so uh, just to give a few key takeaways here in the middle of the interview uh let's uh talk a little bit still about cadence you mentioned there already in the beginning that uh maybe not so much knowledge exists about that either but uh if is there anything to go deeper on in terms of cadence like uh, more efficient less efficient cadences and uh anything like metabolic demands i heard some things about uh, metabolic demands that it might be higher on a on lower cadence but uh, i'm not too well versed in in that area i must say 
Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's go back to the whole, you know, trend towards a much higher cadence. Uh, and that really started with Lance Armstrong and, uh, where he and his team and his coaches claim, oh, yeah, you know, he he started riding on climbs at 100 rpm or more whereas most people were riding at 75 80 rpm and the whole idea is that you know there's less stress on the legs with each pedal stroke and again that sounds intuitively great and um you know there were papers published about Armstrong's efficiency changes over his uh, his career but you know now we know a lot about you know, why Armstrong was so fast. And it may not necessarily have been any changes to his cadence. But regardless, that senses, uh, that, that idea has really spread to a lot of people really trying to see whether you should increase your cadence and, uh, to make your body more efficient. I don't really think it is going to play a huge factor. I think there's a lot of natural kind of rhythm involved and in that some people, for better or for worse, are just, you know, big gear grinders and relatively low cadence. And that is where they are most efficient and, and most comfortable being. And whereas some people tend to be really, really high cadence, uh, riders. And again, that's where they feel most comfortable in, in terms of pure absolute efficiency, the, the highest efficiency values are actually at about 50 to 60 RPM. Uh, when those tests are done in the lab and anything higher than that, once you get into 70, 80, 100 RPM, you are being much less metabolically efficient. But that's, that's lab based and, uh, but that's not how we ride in the real world. Even a very low cadence gear masher would be riding at about 80 RPM and which is much higher than what is metabolically most efficient. So I think it really comes down to, to, uh, your own experimentation on what you feel is most comfortable. I don't think, uh, cyclists or triathletes need to consciously think, okay, I'm riding at a 90 RPM on average. I really want to focus this winter on riding at 105 RPM and higher. It's certainly valuable to train your body to do something different in terms of just ha- having that variety because you are recruiting different muscles. You are having different neural activation, but I don't think it's necessarily to have a goal of, okay, this time next year, I want to be doing my races at, you know, 100 RPM or 105 RPM. I think you have to stick with what your body is naturally most comfortable with. And, you know, as a personal anecdote, I've, I always tend to be a relatively, um, a low gear or sorry, a low cadence rider. I tend to ride at about 90 to maybe 95 RPM. So I'm not one of these high cadence spinners, but to go back to the bike fit question, I, I think your bike fit does have a huge role in it because, uh, I think if you are a triathlete and you're in a very tucked position and you're riding really big cranks, it's just going to be impossible for you to comfortably spin at a high cadence because you are in such a uh, extreme position. And that's a case where I think a, a shorter crank 
can be a huge benefit because it puts your body and your lower body into a more kind of moderate range of of position and you can generate a lot more power more comfortably that way and my own experience for the longest time i was you know i started riding in the mid 80s and the style back then was to have your saddle really high and really really far back and literally for about 25 years or more that I I didn't change my saddle position at all whatever bikes came along they were really high really far back and at the same time I was also a really like I say it tend to be a a low cadence rider but then I actually went and got a bike fit and uh and one of the things we did was move my saddle down a little bit and forward by a lot as in about 3 centimeters or so my saddle tip used to be about seven and a half to eight centimeters behind the bottom bracket and we moved it to a um you know about four and a half five centimeters behind the bottom bracket and i could generate just as much power but man i was able to ride at a much higher cadence much more comfortably and so i would be riding along now at 100 rpm instead of 90 so i think it's it's partly bike fit uh, partly where you've positioned your body and also partly what is naturally comfortable. So I don't think it's just one thing. I think you have to look at the whole body and the entire rider and bike system. Right. Uh, that, uh, yeah, that gives us a great, uh, great overview of uh, the cadence. And, and I think that one, one thing to definitely keep in mind is to race as you train and train as you race. And, and that will, whether that's low cadence or, or high cadence, uh, you need to you can't just suddenly change that on race day and expect it to be a sudden moment of magic for you. Uh, let's move on and just quickly cover two things because then I want to finish off with going a bit deeper on strength training. But first, before that, pacing very quickly uh, and not going into too much detail, how should we pace in uh, the cycling leg of, of a triathlon? Well, the main difference between a triathlon bike leg and a time trial on the road is, you know, the time trial on the road ends and that's the race. And whereas you still have a run coming up and it can be anything from a five to 10 K to a marathon coming up. So it's about covering that distance as fast as you comfortably can without putting yourself in such a hole that you're going to be in a really bad shape on the run. So that's the first big difference between road and time trial. And then with that in mind, you know, you don't want to be going out hard at the start of a a bike leg of a triathlon, unless it's a draft legal one where it's worth it to spend that energy to make sure you're in that front pack because you're going to be saving so much more energy. So sometimes the pacing is forced upon you in a draft legal triathlon where you simply have to be in the pack or else you're going to be losing minutes um, and expending a huge amount of energy. In a non-drafting one, then I would personally settle in, for example, if it's a 40K Olympic distance triathlon i would really spend that first 5 to 10k getting comfortable on the bike really settling into a good groove not really worrying about your power output or worrying about the maximizing the the uh, power output at that time i would 
build into that effort. And then over the, the 10 to 30 K part of the triathlon, then I would really be settling into as fast as I comfortably can. And then the last 10 K, I would start thinking about, okay, you know, even if it's, Things that aren't going to be maximizing your bike efficiency, but even if you need to stretch a bit, you know, don't worry about it. Do it because you need to be able to comfortably run. And, uh, you know, if you may or may not want to push on that last hill on that last 10 K, um, you know, and you really have to know yourself. You have to know your climbing abilities. You have to know how long that hill is and whether you can risk kind of going into the red and going really hard up that hill or whether you want to take it easy knowing that you're a better runner and you want to save that energy for the runner. So I think this is where you, the athlete really needs to know themselves, know whether, you know, they are the stronger cyclist or a stronger runner. But regardless, I would, the biggest emphasis is don't start too hard on a, uh, a no drafting triathlon. In that chapter in the book, there is an interesting point about how to distribute your energy. Of course, that's more from a time trial perspective and not taking into account that triathletes need to run afterwards. Mm -hmm. But uh, when you come to a hill, for example, in a race, should you stay at the exact same power or should you increase the power? And how should you think about that? Just not considering the run itself, but just if you have X amount of energy to spend, how should you expend that most optimally if it would hills and headwinds for example uh if you're facing a period of headwind or hill where you're going to be going slower i would be going harder let's say your average power that you can sustain your threshold power is 250 watts and you're for most of the flat part of the time trial you're riding at 240 to 250 and that's great if i'm hitting a hill i'm not going to be just riding at 250 and settling into it if it's a short hill i'm going to be standing up probably and uh and really trying to hammer up that hill i might be going at 350 watts for or, you know 30 seconds to a minute to really get myself over that hill or headwind um, whereas if it's a much longer hill then I'm not going to be going at 350 that high over my threshold but I'm still going to be going higher let's say you know 270 280 watts for maybe five minutes or so to get over that hill because the thing you have to remember is your speed is going to be much lower and therefore you are going to be spending more time on that hill. The, the slower you go, the more time of your overall bike split you're going to be spending on that hill. So you want to minimize that time. Whereas if you are then turning around and coming down that hill, then that's where you can recover. You're not necessarily going to be trying or even able to sustain 250 watts because you may be descending so fast that you just can't turn that speed over. So that's where you want to recover. And the pacing research that has been done really verify that, that you want to be able to spending more energy on, in a sense, the places where it's going to matter the most. And it's going to matter into a headwind or up a hill. And then you want to recover on the easier parts. In three sentences at most, how do you know when to stand up on a hill and when to stay seated? I would stand up 
for a break from your regular position. That would be one reason, just to give myself a little bit of a stretch. I would also stand up if I know it's a short enough hill that I can really power up. And for example, if it's 20, 30 seconds of a hill, and I would also consider standing up coming out of a corner if it is a really tight corner where the importance is to get your bike back up to speed. And those, the standing up is going to be able to generate a lot more power. And that's where it really comes in handy. Mm. So strength training. What do we know about uh, its benefits on uh, cycling performance and also potentially injury prevention or, or other benefits? I think the research to date shows that the strength training is important for all endurance athletes. And I think it touches on what you said on all of those things on injury prevention, on your overall health. Uh, triathletes tend to be a lot more balanced in their bodies than road cyclists, uh, because you're also swimming. And, but I think regardless, all endurance athletes can benefit from, uh, core work, from really focused strength work at particular phases of the year. Uh, I think I'll first talk about you know the the reason for specifically being in the weight room as uh one of the kind of the old theories of strength training is well you can just do it on the bike by riding at 50 rpm you know all winter long and that really doesn't have a huge amount of strength training benefits on your body per se. It just gets you used to riding at 50 RPM. It doesn't really strengthen your body as much as being in the gym. Uh, in the gym, the studies that have been done combining both endurance training and heavy strength training shows that there is a mutual benefit and that there isn't necessarily a loss of power. There is, if anything, an improvement in power. And it mainly seems to come down not necessarily to changes in your metabolism, but changes in your neuro pattern and your kind of movement efficiency. You're able to recruit more in different muscles uh, because you are in the gym and you've done a good program of strength training and that's going to lead to less overall fatigue in particular muscles so because otherwise you're just recruiting the same muscles over and over again when you're riding the bike or running and being in the in the weight room with a good focus program is going to allow you to really bring a lot more muscles into play so that you're not fatiguing the same muscles over and over so I think that's one of the big benefits. And then, you know, we know the importance of core work of the entire core, not just doing a whole bunch of ab crunches. If you are going to be in this extended aerodynamic position, because, um, you know, you have to still have that very, very strong core in order to have this whole link in the body that allows you to transmit power through to, uh, through to the pedals. If you're, core is really uh, weak, then your entire body is going to be, in a sense, flexing around and it's not going to be able to generate the power as much. So certainly the science supports that uh, strength training can be a very useful component of endurance 
training uh, done in conjunction with endurance training. And but you also want to periodize the training. You're not necessarily going for um, you know the bodybuilder look. You're also not necessarily just doing the same thing throughout the entire year. So in the off season, you can focus a bit more on the really kind of strength based work. Whereas as you get into the competitive season, you're really talking more about maintenance. You're talking more about building bike specific power where the pa- where the strength exercises should really closely resemble um you know cycling so instead of doing two-legged presses you might be doing one-legged presses and uh, really really emphasizing that yeah and do correct me if i'm wrong but this is the one chapter that i spent uh, the most time skimming through as uh, little time as i had to do it but it seems that most of the evidence for improved performance if we're talking about just pure performance in cycling is from uh, developing maximum strength and lifting heavy weights so in the maybe four to six rep range or something like that is uh, that a correct uh, interpretation uh that's generally correct and that's what the uh, book chapter really talks about when it says heavy strength training but again it's not something that you're going to be doing throughout the entire year this is what you're going to be doing in the off season to build up to it so to start with you're going to just be doing a lot of general body conditioning exercises to get you used to the the higher weights and then after that you have to keep in mind that most of the initial changes in terms of the amount of weight you can lift isn't really because of muscle changes. It's really because of your neural changes. You're just able to recruit more in different muscles. And so the first, you know, even two to four weeks of a strength training program, you're going to see a lot of improvement. It's not because your muscles are necessarily stronger. It's just your nerves are working better. And then after that is when you want to really hit the, the muscles with that kind of max high uh, level strength work and to build as much kind of muscle mass and muscle uh, strength as possible. And then you want to start after a few weeks of that, whether it's uh, four to six weeks of that, you want to start tapering that down to get to more cycling or running specific or swimming specific exercises. That's going to be multi-joint still, but it's going to resemble your uh, what you're actually doing on on the bike or on the pavement and uh to be more specific that way yeah and uh what about uh when you lift is there a place for explosing more powerlifting style or is it more regular normal lifting if uh again if we're talking about that uh, heavy strength training or in general plyometrics uh, etc what, what what's the role of those explosive explosive exercises and plyometric exercises um i think they all can play a role and i think partly it's also what you enjoy and what you have available if you don't necessarily have access to you know, a really, uh, you know, top level gym with all of the, can say the Olympic weight equipment, for example. I think you can do a lot with whether it's plyometrics with other types of exercises. So I think a lot of it 
depends on what you like to do and what you have access to do. But I think the main message is that strength training is a good thing for cyclists and for triathletes in terms of just building that overall kind of body competency and to have that stronger frame. And then where I would really focus it on is um, I think probably for triathletes, plyometrics may have a little bit less of a role, certainly in non-drafting races where it's more about, you know, that steady, sustained uh, muscle strength. And I think that really comes from the traditional type of higher weight training. Whereas if it's more of a, if your emphasis is more on draft legal ones, where there may be a lot of accelerations, lots of power burst, that's where I think some of the power-based strength training and the plyometrics can really come in handy to teach your body how to really instantly and quickly develop that power. Mm, yeah. Final question on strength training is, uh, how do you order your uh, workouts if you have both endurance and strength training on the same day? Uh, there's uh, some uh, information on this out there and, and what's uh, your take and uh, the current uh, state of the art from uh, based on research on uh, which one to do first and should you have a break between or can you do them uh, after each other? Uh, how What's your take on that? I think a lot of that comes down to, again, the phase in the, in the year that you are in. If you're in the off season where your focus is, for example, really on the heavier weight training, that should be your priority and emphasis. You're probably not as emphasizing kind of the aerobic development. You're not being as specific in your endurance, kind of cycling, running, swimming work during that part of the year. So the emphasis when you are freshest, when your body is most able to handle it, to have the best quality training should really be on that strength work. Whereas, um, you know, the endurance work um, in your three main sports can take a little bit of a backseat. Whereas if it's that, during that the that, that uh, you want in this phase the athlete to to do the strength session as their first workout of the day when they're fresh and if they have a second workout do that second or uh, what what does that emphasis translate to in terms of the order of the of the workouts on a particular day? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you know, do the do the most important workout when you are fresh. And in this case, this would be at that part of the season where the emphasis is on maximal kind of uh, strength training, then I would put that as as the first workout when you are the most fresh. Whether you immediately go and do an endurance workout or you wait a little bit, that can vary. It depends on your own scheduling. I don't think there's really a right or wrong answer to that. But I think the general idea is the last thing you want to do is when you are going, uh, you know, you are already tired from, let's say, doing a, doing a, a three hour ride. And then I'm going to go and do really heavy weights now. You're also going to risk a lot more injury. Yeah. Let, let, let's add some, some some power to it as well, like doing really high. Yeah, absolutely. Maximize our chances. Of well, I remember <laughs> I used to uh, do a lot of short track speed skating, and uh, and 
on Saturdays, because I was living in Vancouver where you can do this, I would be going for a three hour ride in the morning with a, with a fast group. And then I would go and do my, uh, go to speed skating practice and I'd be wobbling and weaving my way all over because my legs are so tired. I wasn't getting any benefit out of that speed skating and I was just only being a danger to myself and others. And that's where the injury can really happen. So, so, uh, hopefully my errors can uh, help your listeners a bit. Yeah. All right, uh, Stephen, this has been really, really good. And as we talked about a bit, uh, it will be two episodes. Uh, Super. Because uh, we're running long, but it's well worth it. Let's just finish off with uh, rapid fire questions that I have for you, starting with what's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to cycling or triathlon? Well, I, I got to be biased. My favorite book would be Cycling Science itself. And. Uh, <laughs> I'm a little bit biased there, and I personally really like uh, the website. If, if you are no, yeah, since you are known for yourself, you can add another <laughs> another book as well if you want to. <laughs> if I want another book, it is uh, well another book I I really enjoyed is a sports psychology book. It's uh, just published this past year by Velo Press. It's called Calm the Fuck Down, and uh, how to how to um you know really take control of your mind and use use your mind to your benefit and it is just such a really well done book in terms of answering instead of being an airy fairy sports psychology book it really takes a direct look at 12 of the biggest issues facing endurance athletes everything from body image to comparing yourself to others to keeping calm before a big race and really looking at what's happening in your brain and what you can do about it so it's a super applied book uh so i really really enjoyed that and i've used that a lot in my own racing over the past year uh in terms of of cycling websites um I write for Pez Cycling News, P-E-Z Cycling News.com. And I find we have a really good voice. We do a lot of interviews of riders you may not have heard of, both from the past history and also from uh, the real young up-and-comers. We seem to have a good knack for picking them before they become stars. And we have a really nice take, I think, on professional cycling. Uh, I do all the sports science writing and managing for that. And... Uh, yeah, so those are two of my favorite resources for for cycling. Great. What's your favorite piece of gear or equipment? <laughs> I guess it would have to be uh have to be all my various power meters. I've tested a whole bunch of them and it's a running joke on my club rides if I have less than less than two power meters on my bike. So being a scientist and being a bit addicted to data, I just find you can do so much with power analysis that it it doesn't decrease my enjoyment of cycling. It just uh, increases my enjoyment knowing I can dig deeper into how the body works. Yeah, and uh, if uh, they're showing slight, slightly different numbers, you can always pick the one that's highest. So there's that. Exactly. Finally, <laughs> who's somebody in uh, cycling, triathlon, or in science that you admire? Uh, well, I admire a lot of my scientific colleagues, and uh, but... In terms of the cyclist that I admire most, the most influence on me is uh, Canadian cyclist Steve Bauer. And I got into cycling in the mid-80s watching 
the LA Olympics for the first time uh, live and I had no idea that people race bikes and so I just sat transfixed for the entire race watching Bauer win a silver medal and um, and after that I jumped onto my $100 bike rode for about 30-35 kilometers came back absolutely chafed everywhere tired bonked uh, but with a stupid grin on my face so so in terms of who I admire most Steve had the most influence on me and ironically or funny enough how life works I now live um, you know in the same town as Steve Bauer and we go riding a lot together so it's a really neat circle of life yeah, that was a great great story so uh yeah you mentioned uh, fed cycling news and uh the listeners can uh, follow your writing there and uh also i think we should mention because we will do a separate interview on that uh on uh, the uh, exert platform uh, from uh, baron biosystems where you are the chief sports scientist correct uh, and uh, you have uh, your bio there as well do you have uh, anywhere else than where you like a twitter account or something that uh listeners can follow or what's the best place to follow you no those are the best places i manage the again the toolbox section where we have a different article on training and fitness on uh, coming out every tuesdays and we've done that for the last 15 years the website's completely free and it's just a great resource with many coaches contributing to it to get really objective, unbiased uh, overview of everything from sports psychology to sports nutrition to um, general fitness training. What I do in those those articles I write is I take a current or recent scientific paper and I really try to try to explain it and uh, see how we can apply it to our daily training. Yeah, and uh, let's hope that this episode has uh, done the same for not just recent, but uh, overall the existing science in, in cycling. All right, uh, this has been Stephen Chung. It was a real pleasure talking to you and having you on that triathlon show, Stephen. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot, Michael. And there you have it. I hope and think that these two episodes can be a real hit, not just with the triathlon community, but also with the cyclists. So if you know any cycling buddies that uh, would find these episodes valuable, do share them with them as well. I've got several emails from cyclists saying that they actually listen to the podcast very regularly, even though it's primarily a triathlon show. But endurance sports is endurance sports, and there are many, many things that translate from different disciplines to another. So tell all your cycling friends about it. You can find the show notes on thattriathlonshow.com for this episode. And I want to once again remind you that I'm trying to get 100 five-star ratings and reviews within 2017. And I need your help to get there. I need it really badly because we're coming up on just a month and a half or so left of this year. So scientifictriathlon.com forward slash rate is where you can learn how to rate and review the podcast. Or if you already do know that, then just do it right in your podcast app right here and right now. Big thanks to Precision Hydration for their continued support of that triathlon show. Remember to get your ballpark sweat sodium content number and a personalized hydration strategy. Take their free online sweat test on precisionhydration.com and use the discount code that triathlon show all one word all caps for 15% off 
Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.